Father, we thank you tonight for our Savior. Thank you for your love for us in sending him. Jesus, we thank you that you came. Father, thank you for bringing us into a personal relationship with you. We're humbled by what it cost you in order for that to happen. But we are so grateful. And we pray that tonight as we turn to your word that you would speak into that relationship with you tonight. Speak into our lives. Deepen our understanding of you, Lord. And then doing so, just continue to enlarge our capacity for worship and awe directed toward you. And we pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good evening to you. Acts chapter 8, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And we come to Acts chapter 8. This evening we made partway through the chapter last week and uh, we'll look to finish that up and move beyond that this evening. Remember that we've already seen in uh, chapter 8 Saul's persecution of the church in the city of Jerusalem. So great he's literally endeavoring to exterminate the existence of Christianity and Christians in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, for some reason, the apostles lay beyond his reach, and, um, but the persecution was so significant that it drove uh, Christians out from Jerusalem, except for the apostles, into the surrounding area. And with that great kind of exodus out of Jerusalem, was a man by the name of Philip who came into Samaria, begins to preach uh, the gospel, not only a deacon, but also an evangelist. He preaches the gospel to the Samaritans, and then a uh, Samaritan Pentecost breaks out uh, there. And then, of course, the uh, great harvest of souls, and then ultimately Peter's uh, interaction with Simon, uh, who is known as Simon uh, the Sorcerer. And that brings us now to chapter uh, 8, verse uh, 26. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go uh, toward the south along the road which goes down uh, from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then uh, Luke makes his editorial comment by the Spirit of God, This is uh, desert. So if Philip uh, thought to himself, as God used him to spark this uh, massive revival, a massive harvest of souls, uh, in uh, Samaria, probably in the capital city of Samaria, which was Samaria, uh, and uh, thought, all right, this is the start of a church, and so I'm going to be planted here for the rest of my life. This is what God is going to do with my life. Let's start the building project and, uh, and, and, and uh, hunker down here. Instead, the Lord calls Philip to leave. The excitement of that scene and to travel uh, some 80 miles southwest to a, a dry, dusty desert town uh, named uh, Gaza. So he goes, and you just have to put yourself in his shoes. He goes from this thriving, uh, uh, overwhelmingly fruitful uh, environment of Samaria, and he goes out into this uh, wilderness. It doesn't make any sense 
uh, it all. And uh, Luke seems to get it when he declares, this is a, a desert. If you thought Samaria was bad, this is really uh, out there. And yet you notice that uh, first word of verse 27, so he arose and went. So we have a, a so obedience here in him. All he needed to do was to just hear what God wanted him to do in his life, and he was going to do that. It wasn't going to be a weighing of Gaza and a a weighing of Samaria and what he thought of it or anything. He so values being in God's will, and there's no safer place in the world, no better place in the world than being in God's will. There is so much that he might not understand about this instruction. Why would you move me from this and then move me over here into that? But he doesn't ask those questions. Uh, He simply obeys that confidence in the direction uh, of the Lord and the wisdom of the Lord. And it's the recipe really for the most exciting life a Christian can live, and that is to simply hear the Lord's direction in our life and then to simply do that. Uh, He has, uh, we can come up with our plans for what we think might be It could be the most exciting life that we could possibly live. And uh, what he has planned exceeds all of that. And so uh, here he he just simply obeys him, and then then he goes out. I think it's important, and there's going to be great fruit that comes from this, but in a kind of a different way than Samaria. I think it's important to realize, related to the Christian church, that it is not uh, organizationally, uh, it is not a top-heavy organization. Um, of course, Christ is the head of the church. Uh, he's the head of the body. We are the body of Christ. We are the means by which he accomplishes his will in, in the world. Uh, and when you have a local church like this one, of course, there has to be, as we see in the scriptures, the establishment of elders and deacons. They need to be recognized by leadership. So there is some of that structure and organization. But here you have Philip just listening to the Lord. And, and that's how the kingdom of God, by and large, I'm convinced, Uh, expands in the world, not from a top-down kind of edicts and organizing, but just individual Christians like us waking up in the morning and saying, Lord, my life is bought by you. It belongs to you. Would you just direct me today in the way that you want to direct my life? And I pray that you would use me in, in some way. And Christianity advances, by and large, on the basis of that. Individual Christians, not being told what to do by other human beings, but simply listening to the Holy Spirit and then obeying what it is that He calls us uh, to do. And so He uh, arises and then makes His way and then behold, so He's out in this very arid Uh, Even for the Middle East, it's a very arid uh, area, rocks and sand and all of this. And as he's out there and behold, so something comes uh, into his eyesight and and vision, 
that's a little bit different than sand and rocks, so it's going to get your attention. A man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace or Candace, the queen of the uh, Ethiopians. Uh, this Ethiopian eunuch who it was an official uh, in her cabinet or in her reign, and he had charge over all of her treasury. He had come to Jerusalem in order to uh, worship. And so here he is, uh, very, very high position. The description of him is not incidental. He's from uh, Ethiopia, what we would know today as modern-day uh, Sudan as opposed to uh, modern-day Ethiopia. And uh, so come from the African continent into the Middle East, and he's a man of great authority over the treasury of uh, Candace or Candace and uh, in, uh, in Ethiopia at that time, in terms of how the structure of their government kind of, of, of worked, uh, that Candace is not the name of the queen, but it's a title, much in the same way that the Egyptians were called Pharaoh, the, and that was the title uh, that they had. At that time in Ethiopia, the king was regarded as a god, and because he was regarded, isn't it amazing the religions that man can come up with Man uh, 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 somehow ends up at the top of that. Imagine that. But, uh, but the belief was that uh, the king was a god, and so these administrative duties were below him as god, and so they fell then to, uh, to his wife, and who practically speaking became the ruler of the country. And so uh, this uh, Ethiopian eunuch is very, very uh, powerful, uh, powerful man, and, uh, and the country was very, very wealthy at that time. Probably came to Jerusalem from Ethiopia, um, certainly out of a, a desire uh, to worship the Lord and to seek the Lord. We're going to see in a moment that he has a scroll, uh, maybe a, a scrolls related to the entire Old Testament, maybe wealthy enough to get something like that, but he is at least purchased in the bookstore there at the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, uh, he, he has purchased a, um, well, it, it's not there at this point in, in history. So purchased somewhere there, a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. So maybe he is a proselyte, a, a Jewish convert into Judaism. Uh, maybe he's just a, uh, a seeker after God. At that time, uh, Judaism was the sole monotheistic religion in the ancient world. Now there are two others, Christianity and Islam. But uh, lots of people in the Gentile world, they just got tired of worshiping all these gods, all of these uh, deifications of, of, uh, of fallen man and, and the, the fallen characteristics of man and, and the life that followed that. And when they came into contact with the God of the Jews, who was but one God, uh, at the very least, he was a lot easier to keep track of than trying to appease all of these other gods. And so, uh, the Lord was very attractive to Jews, uh, to Gentiles who were thinking at the time. And, and so at any rate, he, he was, and uh, he comes probably at the time of one of the annual uh, Jewish feasts there, and he tends it, and now he's headed back uh, to uh, uh, Ethiopia. 
And so there he is as he's making his way, and uh, he had come to, uh, to Jerusalem to worship. Now he's returning. We're told that the means that he's returning uh, by he's sitting in his chariot, uh, and he's reading uh, Isaiah the prophet. So don't think of Ben-Hur and the chariot like that. That's, uh, it'd be pretty hard reading. So the chariot is probably something like uh, a large wagon with some kind of a cover over it being pulled by oxen and uh, enough room for him to sit or to lay down and get comfortable and maybe his driver as well. And so uh, it's a comfortable situation and he's uh, reading from this scroll of Isaiah the prophet and, uh, and it would make sense that he had recently purchased that uh, in Jerusalem. To purchase the scriptures themselves, the Old Testament, uh, would, have, would have required great wealth. It was a, would have been a privilege. Remember, these, all of these scriptures were handwritten in those days. Uh, even to uh, possess as your own possession uh, a, a, a copy of one of the books of the Old Testament like Isaiah would have required uh, great wealth. And so that's what it is that he has uh, picked up. And then uh, as he's making his way, then the Spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake uh, this chariot. So we do notice a progression, uh, the will of God being revealed to uh, Philip progressively. Uh, this, uh, if he was still in Samaria and God told him, go near and overtake this chariot, wouldn't have made any sense at all. It's only as he, he obeys the first thing that God told him to do that then God gives him the second thing to do and, and the progression. In other words, he, he feels, he, he holds God's leading in his life in, in, in such high esteem uh, that, and God recognizes it by virtue of his obedience that God then reveals the next part uh, of the progression. Now, if you're anything like me, and uh, if you are like me in this regard, then you know it's something that we have to um, grow away from. I kind of like, if I'm going to get on a path, I kind of like to know where it begins where it ends, and everything that's going to happen to me on the course of that path. And boy, in 40-some years of walking with the Lord, he's just not into that. And he just tells you the one thing, and then he reveals the next thing. And it's, of course, it's the development of faith in this, uh, in this uh, walk. And so he's given the command, and then you see the word so again. This is the kind of faith and obedience that Philip has. Philip ran to him. So uh, you see him running across this uh, barren kind of wilderness, huffing and puffing maybe, and uh, if it's being pulled by oxen, uh, this chariot, it's going fairly slow. But he runs up alongside it, and he starts talking to the Ethiopian uh, uh, eunuch. And uh, he said to him, do you understand uh, what you are reading? And apparently he's reading out loud. And, uh, and, and, uh, and, and here Philip recognizes it for what it is from Isaiah, and uh, the Ethiopian eunuch doesn't. Now, if you ever see these kind of ancient manuscripts of any kind uh, that are 
ancient, uh, you notice they don't waste a lot of room on those pages. Uh, uh, the, the ink was expen- expensive, the papyrus was expensive, everything was expensive about it. So they ran those words right into one another and without punctuation. And then in the Hebrew language, it's even more difficult because there aren't the vowels. And so here he is, very likely, he's reading out out loud just so he can kind of make sense of it a little bit. Sometimes I, I will uh, look at a passage that's not making any sense to me or, or, or whatever, especially as a younger Christian, and then I would just read it out loud, and there's something about uh, uh, not only speaking it and reading it, but then hearing it, even though I was the speaker, that would offer some clarity related to that. And, uh, and so uh, here he is, he's, uh, he, he's uh, reading this, uh, clearly reading it out loud, and, uh, Isaiah, and, and uh, Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, unless somebody uh, guides me? What beautiful humility in this man's life. Think about the position that he holds in uh, that governments in the ancient world and in Ethiopia. I mean, there's a lot of people for whom it's really hard when somebody asks them, do you know what you're reading or do you understand, to be able to say, no, I don't understand. But this is the quality of his nature. Nobody's going to grow spiritually who won't admit that we don't know what that means. Can you help us understand what that means? And he he has that humility of a teachy, teachable heart, and so God is going to uh, teach him. And so he asked Philip to come on up, probably felt bad about him huffing and puffing, running alongside in this conversation, and, and to sit with him, really to have him explain things. It was an invitation. You come and explain these things uh, to me. And uh, Philip came up, sat with him in the place in the, in the Scriptures in Isaiah, uh, which the Ethiopian eunuch was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, uh, his justice was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So uh, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading from Isaiah 53. It is the Mount Everest of messianic scriptures concerning Jesus as the Messiah in the Old Testament. And so uh, this is uh, an open door where it's not some, maybe some obscure part of Isaiah having to do with the kingdom age. Here he's on the passage in 53 talking about uh, Messiah. And so he says, can you help me understand this? And that's an open door you can drive a white freight liner through. And, uh, and so he does. You imagine his uh, excitement as a preacher and as an evangelist that this is where uh, he gets to begin to preach. And Isaiah, in that section of Isaiah, described Messiah as being led to death there in verse 32. And so Jesus was, more than that, not only will he die, 
Uh, but the passage declares he'll die as a sacrifice, and so Jesus did for our sins. Decla declared further, he won't defend himself. He'll sit silent before the accusations that are made against him, just as Jesus did. He would, do, he would not experience justice on the day of his trial or examination, just as Jesus did not, and that he would uh, die and die childless, just as uh, Jesus did. And so he, he doesn't know who is this talking, uh, 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 who is this uh, speaking uh, about. Verse 34, the eunuch uh, then uh, answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet Isaiah say this? Is he talking about himself or of some other man? Wow! And then Philip opened his mouth and he, beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. So he begins to preach Jesus as uh, Messiah. He preaches him as the Son of God. And he preaches the necessity of being born again, faith in him for salvation. You notice that he didn't begin and end his sermon in that passage. He began at this scripture. And so he begins to go into all kinds of different places to build this case for Jesus uh, as the promised Jewish Messiah and the Savior uh, of the world. And so when they had uh, went down the road, uh, they uh, came to some water, and uh, the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? So apparently, uh, uh, Philip moved into the New Testament, or... Uh, the great commission as Jesus gave the disciples, and that is to, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, the necessity of water baptism, not for salvation, but as an evidence of salvation. And so uh, he obviously at this point has believed in the gospel. He has believed based upon this sermon that's been taught to him that Jesus is the Messiah. He has put his faith in uh, Jesus as uh, the Messiah and as his Savior. And now he's desiring uh, to be water baptized as Jesus had instructed uh, the disciples to do. And then Philip said to him, if you believe with all your heart, and that word believe is the John 3.16 believe. For God so loved the world, Jesus said, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so it's the same word that Jesus used there to speak of this man's faith. He is born again here uh, as a result of this conversation uh, with Philip. And he says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And so the Ethiopian eunuch, he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. In other words, I not only believe that he is the promised Jewish Messiah, I believe that he is the Son of God. And, and, and takes it uh, all the way there. Must have been quite a sermon that Philip uh, gave to him. He's, he's become, it, it, it's so fun when uh, it, every part of the Christian life is a joy, it's a blessing. But when you are a brand new Christian, and you've got a brand new Bible, and you're 
pulling those pages open and the gold is holding them together and one page after the other. I mean, the Bible is that new to us. And everything we hear is brand new uh, into our spirit and what sponges we are uh, as a result of it. And so uh, he is absorbing all of this very quickly. And, uh, and so Philip says, if you've believed unto salvation, I'll be happy to water baptize you. And uh, so he commanded the chariot to stand still and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and uh, Philip baptized him. And so when uh, they came up out of the water, so clearly immersion here, uh, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he, that is the eunuch, went on his way rejoicing. Oh, I bet he did. I went to Jerusalem, and I went to see this feast, and all of these things, and I bought a scroll, you know, of, of Isaiah, and then this happened to me, and now all the lights have gone on for me. And he goes back, and tradition tells us that he headed back into uh, the city of, uh, back into Ethiopia, and, uh, and became instrumental in reaching uh, that part of the world uh, with the gospel, and we don't uh, we don't always know the how accurate uh, church tradition uh, is, but uh, he was excited and excited, I think, in a way that he wasn't going to keep it to himself. Philip then was found at uh, Azotos, and uh, and passing through, uh, God supernaturally takes him there. He preached in all the cities till he came uh, to the city of. Uh, Caesarea, and so he makes his way there, and uh, and uh, and we're going to find him in the city of Caesarea a little bit later in uh, in the book of Acts. And we come speaking of testimonies. Testimonies are wonderful, aren't they? So we have this testimony of the Ethiopian eunuch, and um, uh, that's certainly uh, all. All conversion experiences are an unspeakable miracle. Uh, but um, my testimony can't touch the Ethiopian eunuch's uh, testimony, at least in terms of what I could see outwardly. But we don't know what the Lord has done behind the scenes in, in terms of our salvation. And so he moves now from this great testimony. A testimony is a salvation story, how we came to know the Lord, now to... Uh, the, probably the most famous conversion and the most famous testimony uh, in church history, and that is the conversion of Saul and Tarsus, who ultimately, uh, this Saul, would become the Apostle Paul. So every, uh, every salvation story, every testimony is different because how we get saved and what happens, the circumstances are all different, but they're all you, you, uh, absolutely alike in three things. They are the description of what we once were before we came to know Christ, how we came to know Him, and then the life that we have lived since. And so uh, we get a chance to see that here and then now move into uh, those very things related to uh, the Apostle Paul's uh, uh, conversion 
uh, here. And we're told that then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest there in Jerusalem, and he asked letters from him uh, to be able to go to the synagogue, uh, from him to the synagogues uh, of Damascus so that if he found any Christians, any who were of the way, whether men or women, not just in Jerusalem, but in Damascus now, foreign lands, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he is unrepentant. He is full bore. He is wreaked havoc of the church in Jerusalem. He's still not satisfied in his, his opposition. He wants to completely eradicate uh, Christianity uh, at its, at its uh, very, very uh, beginning, and he begins to make his way then uh, to uh, Damascus to continue the job there. And as he journeyed, he came uh, near Damascus, so he's almost to the city uh, of Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Now we know elsewhere in the scriptures that this experience that took place in his life, it happened at noon. And uh, so uh, noon in any part of the world is usually pretty bright already. And it certainly is in the Middle East, in, in Israel or approaching uh, Damascus. And so here comes a light that is even light in the context of the brightest light. And I'm, I'm convinced that it's just kind of the Shekinah glory of God where he is just making his greatness, his holiness, his presence known uh, in that scene. And he comes on the scene in, uh, in this way and, uh, and clothed in, in light. And so the light shone uh, around him from heaven and then he fell to the ground. And so his reaction, if he was on a donkey uh, or a horseback, uh, then he fell from that animal right down onto the ground. If he was walking, he fell down onto the ground. I always like to think of Paul at this point being knocked off his high horse and uh, just being publicly uh, humbled here. And so here you have the, the greatest uh, 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 enemy uh, of Jesus at the time of Christianity in the early church here in and, uh, and Saul of Tarsus determined to uh, eradicate Christianity, and yet just the slightest hint of, of God's glory uh, and, and Jesus' glory in heaven sends him to the ground. And we're going to see in a moment that the light blinded him. He's blinded, he's humbled, he's helpless, he's powerless, and just uh, knocked uh, uh, down and really shown, you know, what he is and what he isn't. And it happens in a moment. And here God, he can take anyone and he can humble them uh, in an instant. And he did it with the Apostle Paul. Uh, Shakespeare in his play, Measure for Measure, he might have had this very event uh, in, in mind uh, when he wrote, but man, proud man, dressed in a little brief authority, most ignorant of what he is most assured, his glassy essence like an angry ape, plays such fantastic tricks before high heaven as makes the angels weep. And King David put it this way, surely, man is of low decree, surely men of low decree are a vapor. 
men of high degree, a degree are a lie. If they were weighed in the scales, they are altogether lighter than vapor. And so the moment, the moment that we no longer see ourselves solely in the context of our fellow man, but to see ourselves in the context of God Almighty, this is the reaction. Everything changes. That's why there's the old saying that uh, uh, pride in, in a person's life, they apply it to ministers most often because we need it the most, but uh, pride is the evidence of a person who has never really met God. Because to really know what He's like and to come into contact with Him, even by degrees, will be to be humbled in a massive way. And so that's exactly what it is that happens here in, in uh, uh, Saul's life. Well, if he thought it couldn't get any worse, it does. And so he falls to the ground, and then he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now here's something that's more important for us uh, to hear again and again, if you've heard it before, but everyone needs to hear it at least once, is that Paul is not actively persecuting uh, Jesus as Messiah and as the Son of God. He doesn't believe Him to be the Son of God. Uh, Saul is persecuting Christians. He's persecuting the church, the body of Christ. But when someone persecutes the body of Christ, Christ as the head views it as an attack upon Him and the persecution being meted out against Him. And so He does concerning any persecution that we face as a result of our, our faith in Christ. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? So he doesn't know. Uh, he's not calling Jesus the Lord of his life yet. That'll only take like two more sentences. But he uses the term Lord here to acknowledge whoever this is, he's far greater than me. So he's, he's picking up the implications of this very, very quickly. And so, uh, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus. Put yourself in his shoes. Put yourself in his mind when he hears that. It's Jesus the one that Stephen said was alive and risen from the dead. And now it is true, and he is talking to me, and this is who I have decided to take on in an attempt to eradicate his people and his church. I mean, I, I can't even imagine what went on in his mind with just those three words, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad, an ox goad in those days, was simply a long stick that had a pointed end. And uh, occasionally you would have a, an ox goad that would have a metal tip for its longevity. 
And uh, it was a means by which somebody would use to uh, guide and direct their oxen or their livestock uh, to their proper destination. So it's a means to guide them to a proper conclusion to the day's work or whatever it, it might uh, be. And, and for any oxen to kick against a goad or any person to kick against a goad, a sharp stick, is only going to end up in injuring ourselves. And yet here is the Apostle Paul kicking against uh, the goads. What goad? The goad of God and trying to get Saul of Tarsus to come to the right conclusion concerning Jesus as Messiah and the Son of God. He was aware of this work of God to bring him to that conclusion, but he was fighting it. And that's why the conversion of, of Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus is not, in my mind, even remotely as instantaneous as some people think. This conversion began all the way back with the preaching and the example of Stephen concerning Jesus as the Messiah as uh, uh, Saul listened to that and then held the garments of those who stoned, uh, 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 stoned Stephen uh, to death. And all of that's still working on him, working, working, working uh, in his life, but he's resisting coming, facing the facts concerning Jesus and coming to that, uh, that proper conclusion. And so he, trembling and astonished, I bet he was. I bet he was. He said, Lord, and now this Lord doesn't mean uh, that he's talking to someone he recognizes as greater than him. At this point, he puts his faith in Christ. Right here, so we'll see it un unpack in the, in the passage. Lord, so it, it tells you, it wasn't like um, he encounters Jesus and he says, oh, wait a second, I've got to get my bearings and understand all of this in the light of, of the Scriptures and in the light of my interpretation of the Old Testament Scriptures as a, a member of the Sanhedrin or as a, as a disciple of Gamaliel uh, uh, or uh, as it relates to uh, uh, Stephen's understanding of the Messiah as he gave out in, uh, in that declaration, that sermon that he preached immediately before uh, his, his death, he already knew that what Stephen had said was true and that Stephen had dismantled his understanding of the law and the prophets as a means of establishing my own righteousness before God on the basis of works as opposed to on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. And so he, all he needed was this moment to force him, so to speak. He wasn't forced to make the right decision, but he was forced to make a decision in the light of what's happening here. And he makes the right decision. He knows he's talking to Jesus. And so he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And so uh, the men who journeyed with him, they stood speechless. 
and uh, stood with him. Uh, they uh, stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. And so here is this. Uh, it was the apostle or Saul, he hears, he understands uh, the language, he understands the communication that Jesus is having with him. Uh, those who are with him heard uh, a voice, but it wasn't, uh, uh, they couldn't comprehend what it was that was being, uh, was being said. They heard the voice, but they couldn't see anyone elsewhere in the Scriptures. They couldn't understand what was being said either. And then Saul arose from the ground, and, uh, and when his eyes uh, were opened, he saw no one. So he opens up his eyes at that moment, and, uh, and at that moment, uh, he is faced with the fact that he is now blind by virtue of this encounter with this light, an encounter uh, with the Lord. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Imagine that. I mean, the Lord can, Lord can humble so quickly, and um, when we don't listen to him, he can, he can do it so publicly and here he is, he's coming in this way, this arrogance, this pride, this ugliness to Damascus. He's going to come in and he's going to set things straight and all. And now by the time he gets there, he needs somebody to take him by the hand to even get into the city, let alone into a place that he's going to, to stay. And so he was brought, we'll see a little bit later, that he's brought into the house of, of a man named Judas, and as he's there, he's there for three days without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. This was not required of the Lord. The Lord did not tell him to do that. This was just a voluntary and an involuntary reaction to what just happened to him. And more important to him than food, more important to him than drink for three days was to start to work through the implications of all of this in his life. And, uh, and so he gives himself uh, to that. Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And, uh, and, and, uh, and to him the Lord said in a vision, uh, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. So here he is in Damascus, this disciple. We have no great title attached to him or anything like that. He just Ananias. He's a, he's a disciple in the city. And the Lord said in the vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. You see, I'm, I'm always um, impacted by, um, by how his response to the supernatural in the Christian life. It wasn't like some amazing, extraordinary, uh, wow, this only happens once in a lifetime that God will speak to me and lead me or, or call on me to do something. Uh, the, the early church, Ananias, certainly was conversant in, in this kind of thing with uh, with God. It wasn't a surprise to him that the Lord came to him in a vision and and called upon him. And he just immediately, as uh, naturally as can be, he presents himself to the Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight. That's the main drag 
in Damascus and inquired the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. So we know that uh, Saul of Tarsus is not only trying to get his mind around everything that's just happened to him, but he is engaged in prayer. He's engaging God in that process in, in his life. And then a vision, uh, the Lord in, informs Ananias, he has seen a man named Ananias, you, coming in and putting his hand on him so that he may receive his sight. And so I want you to go and see him, and I've prepared him for your arrival by way of his own uh, uh, vision. And then Ananias answered, and he said, Lord, I have heard uh, from many about this man, about how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and now he's coming with all of that authority from the chief priest uh, to do the same thing to all of your Christians uh, in Damascus. Uh, if you're open to suggestions, he might be a good man to leave blind uh, for the rest of his life. I don't think we need, want to be helping uh, a man like this. Apparently, this is the first news that Ananias gets of Saul of Tarsus's conversion here. And, uh, and, and so uh, he's hesitant here on this. And the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine. Uh, he is special. Yeah, he's special. No, he's really special. Uh, and a chosen special of, uh, vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I must show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Wow. So the Lord is showing Saul of Tarsus, soon to become the Apostle Paul, not soon, but, but to become Paul, um, all of these things. I don't know about you, but I kind of like the old saying of, um, that goes something like, um, I'm glad the Lord didn't tell me everything that would happen when he told me to do this. Otherwise, I might not have done it. <laughs> you know, say, so go and do this. And, and we go and do it, and these things come one at a time to us in our calling and all. But if he'd shown it to us all at once at the beginning, we'd say, no, thank you. And, uh, and we'd catch our own uh, uh, boat to Tarshish. And, and here, uh, commendable related to Saul, all of those things that he is going to face in his life and in his ministry, God tells him ahead of time, and he still commits to it. God's doing a deep work in this man. And Ananias then went his way, he entered the house, and laying his hands uh, on him, he choked him to death. No, that's not what he... <laughs> he laid his hands on him and he said, Brother Saul. So here, he recognizes him to be a believer. The Lord has already spoken to him as a chosen vessel of mine and so forth. He knows he's, he's a Christian at this point. And that Lord that, that he cried... He said to the Lord on the road to Damascus, that was a salvation Lord. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled uh, with the Holy Spirit. Now here again, we come to another thing that's uh, interesting in terms of 
uh, our understanding of the Holy Spirit and the baptism with the Holy Spirit in addition to uh, the book uh, uh, of chapter 8 where Philip goes into Samaria, preaches the gospel, they believe unto salvation, they're baptized, and only after the apostles come and hands are laid on them do they, as Christians, subsequent uh, from their salvation experience, receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And again, not to make a big deal out of it, but uh, it isn't accurate to say every Christian receives every dynamic of the Holy Spirit in their life um, at the moment of conversion. It may happen, it may happen in the majority of cases. I don't know, but it doesn't always happen. Saul uh, of, of Tarsus here has been a Christian for three days before he receives the baptism with the Holy Spirit. So we have to be careful not to put uh, the, uh, God in a, in a corner related to His Holy Spirit. And immediately, as He's filled with the Spirit, there fell from His eyes something like scales, and He received His sight at once, and then He arose uh, and He was baptized. And so when He had received uh, food, He was strengthened, and then uh, Saul uh, spent some time with the disciples at Damascus. So here he is, this brand new Christian, and uh, he immediately craves Christian fellowship. And um, God bless the Christians in the city of Damascus who are willing to fellowship with him. Uh, it would, you know, it, it would be kind of hard. He might be just coming to take our names and then imprison our families. But they uh, that wasn't what was happening. What was happening here was, was genuine. And so immediately, as he's there in the city of, uh, of uh, Damascus, uh, he's a celebrity in Jerusalem. He preached the Christ in the synagogues, not only that he was the promised Jewish Messiah, but that he was the son, uh, that he is the son of God. So you imagine these synagogues in Damascus, they don't know anything about his conversion. And uh, here we have the esteemed rabbi. Uh, uh, Saul is with us today. They turn over the teaching uh, section of the service to him, and he begins to preach Christ as the Messiah and as the Son of God. Uh, again, as Stephen had preached uh, to, uh, in, in his sermon, and, and Paul had gotten it. So you, you look at this where he immediately starts preaching Christ in the synagogues. That again tells me that uh, Stephen's sermon had been working on him. Because it wasn't like in two days he got this whole thing figured out, and, uh, and now he's going to preach Christ uh, from the Scriptures as the Messiah. I think he, he had internalized what Stephen had said concerning Christ, and, then, uh, and now it becomes his own. He knows enough from that sermon to preach Jesus as the Son of God, and so he does. And then all who were in these synagogues were amazed. And they said, is, not, uh, is this not he who destroyed those who called on the, uh, this name in Jerusalem and has come here for this purpose uh, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest? Who turned the pulpit over to this guy? 
and, uh, and declaring these things. But Saul increased all the more in strength, and he confounded uh, the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. And so uh, uh, here he uh, is this beautiful initial uh, ministry that he had. Now there's a gap of of a, a number of years, three years probably, in, in the narrative in terms of what's being laid out between verse 22 and verse 23. We know from Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia that at this point he must have left the city of Damascus and, and then spent three years in, in kind of the spiritual isolation of uh, Arabia. Chapter 1 of Galatians brings this uh, out. And uh, apparently there was this three-year period in which um, all of this uh, former understanding of the Old Testament Scriptures and, 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 and uh, uh, Saul's a wonderful but limited understanding of the implications of faith in Christ for salvation. God takes him aside for three years and deepens his understanding uh, of, of all of that. And so he's only been steeped in the one interpretation of the Old Testament by uh, the, uh, the, the religious institutions of his day. And now the Holy Spirit has to turn all of that um, uh, on its head in, in his life and make Paul uh, realize that uh, he knows the Scriptures well, but he has missed the most important implication of the Old Testament Scriptures, that they spoke of a Messiah who uh, would come and that would provide a righteousness that no, uh, the law could never provide to uh, a human being. So you imagine him uh, pouring over the Old Testament again and again and again in this distraction-free environment and now understanding it as he had never, uh, never done uh, before. And then following that three-year period, he comes back then into the city of Damascus. The narrative picks up in verse 23. After many days were passed, uh, the Jews plotted to kill him, so he's still uh, preaching, and they want to they want to kill him and silence uh, his voice. Uh, he could recognize that hatred from his own life. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night uh, looking for a chance to kill him. And then the disciples took him by night and uh, let him down through the wall in a large basket. So some Christian apparently had a house on the wall in Damascus, and he is lowered down uh, for his, uh, his own uh, safety, and, uh, and uh, then uh, goes on his way. And, uh, and, the, uh, and so he came to Jerusalem. He tried to join the disciples. They were all afraid of him and uh, did not believe that he was really a Christian, truly a disciple. This is a, we knew him. I mean, you, we knew this guy. You don't trust him. And of course, any persecuted religious minority in the world knows you got to be careful of your safety. And so they're, they're careful here 
And so they didn't believe that, that this was genuine. But then Barnabas, the son of consolation, and you've got to have Barnabas as to, uh, to build these bridges sometimes. They took him, and, uh, took him and brought him to the apostles. And then he declared to them how he had uh, seen, how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of uh, of Jesus. And so there was this, um, he listened to, uh, to Saul's testimony and all of it added up and, and he spoke for him. And so he was accepted. And so he was going with them uh, at, at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. He was you know, serving the Lord there in the city of Jerusalem. He spoke boldly in the name uh, of the Lord Jesus and disputed against uh, the Hellenists, but they uh, attempted to kill him. And so when you can't win an argument, uh, kill him, I guess. That's, uh, it was the uh, theme at that time. And so when the brethren found out about, again, threats against his life in, in the city of Jerusalem, uh, that they brought him down to Caesarea, uh, a coast city of, of, uh, of, of Israel, and they sent him out uh, to his hometown of Tarsus. And then the churches throughout all Judea and uh, uh, Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were uh, multiplied. And so uh, as he, as he uh, leaves and makes his way uh, uh, back home. Uh, as we'll see as we move a little bit further in the book of Acts, Paul goes back to Tarsus, Saul to become Paul, and he remains in Tarsus for a period of between seven and ten years. And uh, no biblical mention of him at all until something happens in the church of Antioch. A great explosion of growth occurs. It becomes uh, the missionary sending church of, of the early church. And then as all of this dynamic is going on, Barnabas remembers just the right man for the needs that this church had and he remembered Saul of Tarsus and then sends for him to come to Antioch. And so begins uh, the Apostle Paul's uh, public, uh, public ministry. And following that experience, his, his life and his ministry dominates the remainder uh, of the book. And so it is fascinating to me that um, after Paul's conversion, there are three years of isolation in Samaria. I mean, uh, rather in Arabia, and then seven to ten years um, in Tarsus, where he just serves the Lord in obscurity. And you've got a, a ten to thirteen year period of Paul's life being prepared for a lifetime of service. And I think not only growing, uh, continuing to grow in the Scriptures, grow not just in his understanding of the Scriptures, but growing in his own relationship with the Lord, growing in his character. You don't throw off that kind of pride and that kind of, of anger and that kind of violence in a day. And so God is going to refine him. You say, boy, when I see Paul in the book of Acts and he just wants to kill people and drag them by the hair out of the house and then... And then I read him in his epistles, and he's this 
firm but gentle guy and what he put up from with the, the Corinthians and others, where in the world did that come from? Well, it came from the Holy Spirit and the work of sanctification, but it didn't happen overnight. This was a period in which all of these things were being developed in his life. And it reminds us in our culture, uh, the um, uh, instant culture that we live in, you know, we want everything right now, uh, that, uh, the, that there are seasons of preparation related to our service to the Lord. We can begin to serve the Lord as, as, uh, as Saul no doubt continued to do in the city of Tarsus. But while we're being prepared maybe for the ultimate thing that is going to happen, it takes preparation. Anywhere in life you see someone who is skilled and gifted and fruitful in that area of life, there was a season of preparation involved. And so not to despise those days of small things and uh, preparation. And so the Lord kind of put them off by the side. I'm not going to distract you with service and all of these other things. Not, in, not as an apostle, I want to develop this side of your life. And the Lord is um, so, so faithful uh, to do that. We'll stop there tonight. And uh, because in verse 32, really, it kind of moves its way into chapter 10 as we move into the apostle Peter and his ministry and uh, out in the seacoast area of uh, of, of Israel. Let's stand together and, and we'll close in prayer. Father, thank you for all of these um, little gems, these little insights that you give us in your scriptures that help us to understand Paul, to understand your ways. What happened to him? He's had such a significant uh, influence and impact upon um, the body of Christ for all the way through into our, our day and to be able to understand a little bit about this and then to realize that you work the same way in our lives as well. We think back on our lives, not all of us, but some of us, and uh, like the apostle, uh, like Saul, um, you would have had every right to squash us many times in the course of things. And maybe other people uh, suggested that you do so. And yet you had a call upon our lives. You protected us, brought us to know you, and then, and then have used us, Lord, in your purposes. We thank you so much for the grace that you have shown to us in our salvation and really in every single day since then. We live to the praise of the glory of your grace every bit as much is the Apostle Paul. We are thankful for it, Lord. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.